Good morning, everyone. We are in John chapter 5, starting John chapter 5 this morning. Uh, next week, I will not be here. Uh, family is going to be taking a trip to Texas for my son's graduation from his army training in San Antonio. Excited about that. Yeah. Uh, so we will not be here this week and next weekend, uh, but pray for our traveling mercies. Uh, my family, pray specifically for my family. They have to drive 12 hours with me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it, it'll, it'll go great. Um, remember in the book of John, we are starting with this theme and sentence every week, just like we started in Ecclesiastes, that wisdom is correctly applied biblical knowledge. But in the book of John, we're looking at this phrase that Jesus the Messiah is the overcoming God King. And everything we see from the book of John will be reinforcing that truth that we do not have a weak Savior who is not able to save, not able to address all the needs in your life. He is able to address it, he has the power to address it, and he has the desire to demonstrate his love and his compassion to you, his children. Each and every message focuses on that. Uh, but I want to start this morning uh, letting you know that it probably is one of the most painful things in my weekly life. And, and you're going to look at this and laugh to think that this is painful. But I have to distill about 50 hours of study into like 35 minutes worth of sermon. And it is really hard at times to figure out what do I keep in and what do I leave out. Because I have learned over the years the things that I find interesting, especially history and little minute details of how things connect, don't always connect with everybody else. And I totally realize that sometimes I can come off with a, a classroom discussion or a classroom um, presentation about whatever the topic might be. And um, I have to apologize this morning because we're going to have a moment in the classroom before we get to the text. And it is super important that you listen to my entire few minutes because if you misunderstand it before I get to the end, you may think I am a heretic. All right? So it's really, really important. And I imagine that there's not a single person in this room that has any interest whatsoever in what I'm really going to be talking about. But it is super important that I at least address this, we connect with it, you understand where I'm coming from, and if you have more discussion you'd like to talk to me about afterwards, remember I'll be back in like two weeks. All right. So if you still have that question, I will be able to help you. But we're going to fast forward in this text, and you will notice Regardless if you're using a U version or you're using, you know, the Bible app or you're using uh, a handheld Bible, the NIV, ESV, New American Standard, uh, you will find in your version of Scripture, most modern translations besides the King James and the New King James, removes verse 4 of the text. And I will give you a second for you to look at your U version Bible app your Bible, whatever you might be using, and you will see that most modern translations go from verse 3 to 5. They don't even use the number 4. And before you begin to think, why are they taking verses out of my Bible? 
I would say they actually added a verse that now is correctly being taken out of, uh, out of the Gospel of John. Uh, that particular verse, and let me read verse 4 as it's written in the King James and New King James. It says, From time to time an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. It wasn't, it wasn't around, well, it was around 1100 A.D., well over a thousand years after John wrote the book of John, that people started finding this verse kind of laying around, this idea laying around that there might be a verse 4. Because before that time, there was no context for that particular verse in Greek or Latin manuscripts. And in fact, we do have some early manuscripts that had that verse in it, but it was a side note. It was kind of like some of your Bibles might have a little uh, note at the very bottom that says, oh, this word means this, or here's a cross-reference. This verse, in part, was kind of all over on the side of some of these manuscripts. And when the person who was copying the manuscript, oftentimes they did not know Greek or Latin. So they were just there to copy it. So they didn't know that that was a side note. And so they would write it sometimes like it was actually part of the verse. But I want you to have absolute confidence that scholars and pastors alike know about this verse and realize that the earliest manuscripts we have for 1,100 years don't have this verse. It's not referred to except in part by one church father in the first 500 years of the church. It's not referred to but by one person and not even the same wording. It's never referred to in any Jewish literature that there was this super incredible pool of water that an angel would disturb and then people would be healed from. And you would think if this was indeed true, people would be lining up for that pool and it'd be all over the news, it'd be all over the history reports of, hey, there's a special pool in Jerusalem that you get healed from immediately because an angel stirs up the water and if you get in there first, you win. So you would think that if it was indeed true history, there would be some reference to it well before a thousand years after the fact, besides a few little references here and there. So it's not that the modern translations are removing this verse and becoming liberal, they're just simply noticing that this verse wasn't there to begin with. So they're removing something that should not have been there to begin with. Now, this does not happen very often. And in fact, in the seven years that I've been here, how many times have I talked about a verse not being in the original? Zero. Zero. So it does not happen often. But when it does, I think we need to at least address it. We need to think about it. Because if I just simply went from verse 3 to 5, you would have more questions like, why didn't he go over verse 4? Well, I'm telling you why we're not going over verse 4, because I don't believe it is a reliable, accurate understanding of what John himself originally wrote. And that is what we need to focus on. What did John originally write? And if you are wondering in your mind, where else does this kind of thing happen? How can I trust the rest of John 4 or John 5? How can I trust John 6, John 7, John 8? Your modern translations will tell you. They'll put a little note there and say, this is not present in the earliest manuscripts that we have. 
And so it'll let you know, and it does not happen often, but we needed to address it so we can get to the real context of what is happening in John chapter 5. And that verse will have some context, context and meaning as we start to go through it. Um, so let's go through these verses, starting uh, in verse 1 through verse 5, really setting the stage here. Jesus returns to Jerusalem and encounters some sick people. Here it goes. After this, that is everything that was happening in chapter 4 in his time in Galilee. So after these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So we went from a lower elevation to a higher elevation, and there were three times in the Jewish calendar when, if you were physically and financially able, you were supposed to go to Jerusalem in order to sacrifice and celebrate in Jerusalem. The first was Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Breads. And we know that that corresponds with our understanding of Easter. And we know that Jesus was there in John chapter 2 and 3, um, cleaning the temple, talking with Nicodemus, left during Passover, went down to Galilee, and now he's back up. So it probably is not a whole year transpiring that um, between John chapter 2, 3, and John chapter 5, so he probably is not going for Easter or Passover, a Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, there's two other feasts. The one is, the second one is the Feast of First Fruits. And that is the beginning of the harvest season. Sometimes the animals were born and birthing during the spring. Uh, sometimes some early crops would be ready or some winter crops would finally be harvested. So Israel was commanded 50 days after Passover, where we have Pentecost happening 50 days after Passover, there was a celebration where all the Jews were supposed to go back to Jerusalem and celebrate that God has provided for them and they would present first fruits, sacrifices and fruit and vegetable offerings, things of that nature, in order to demonstrate how God provides for them. That probably is the time that Jesus is going back to Jerusalem. So he spent some time there at Passover, spent some time in uh, the Galilee area, probably about two months. Now he's back up to Jerusalem. And the third time that people were to go to Jerusalem was for the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Tents, all named the same thing throughout Scripture. That was a time in the fall where people would go to Jerusalem and celebrate the fact that God is a provider, that all through the wilderness God provided for them, and they celebrated it by erecting tents and booths and little structures to sort of connect themselves with how God overwhelmed them with his protection during the time of the, past, during the, time of the exodus and the time in the wilderness, the 40 years. So it's most likely one of those two things. It's either the Feast of the First Fruits or the Feast of Booths that Jesus went to. So about two months after... Um, the events in John 2, 3, and 4, or it could have been another seven months after, uh, sort of in the late fall, where they would have the Festival of the Booths. So sometime during then, he had to go back up to Jerusalem. That sets the stage for verse 2. Now there in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which had five roof colonnades, in there, there lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. 
They actually have uncovered this pool, or what they believe to be this pool, outside the old gates and walls of Jerusalem. No water in it, but it's most likely it was some type of hot spring that kept being fed from underneath, which we do know, even in modern science, that there can be some health value and benefit to going into the hot springs. They tell me, I've never been there, but they say it could be soothing. It's sort of like a jacuzzi, I suppose, in many ways. Uh, but, so Jesus enters into Jerusalem by this gate that the farmers used to bring in the sacrifices into Jerusalem to sell and trade them. And there was this huge Roman pavilion with five different sections of roof covering with columns. And underneath there was this little pool. And surrounded by that pool were everyone who was sick. Everyone who was, had no other hope. We talked about earlier that um, in the book of John, that there wasn't great medical care, that the medical care was basically home remedies, which do work, but they don't address deep, serious, paralyzing type of injuries, blindness and deafness and lameness. And so what hope did they have but just sort of hope that one day they'd be cured. Doing something like this, they may be cured. And so... They're surrounding this pool, and Jesus enters into this room, this outdoor pavilion covered by five different porticos, roofs, with all the structures and all the people. And it had to feel pretty hopeless to be in that spot. Because that was the last spot you ended up before where? You died. There was nowhere else to go. That was the end of life. If you did not get healed and you were there, there was nothing else for you. And we're introduced to a gentleman who we're not given the name of, but he was sitting there. And he had been there as an invalid for 38 years. This was not someone who had just bumped his knee and had a sore and said, oh, my knee is sore, I can't work, help me. This is someone for 38 years could not walk or move. In fact, in the Greek there, it's the word withered. Something withers. It's weak. It's limp. It's, it's, it has no muscle, no strength, no structure to hold itself and move itself. And he was not getting any better. And this wasn't one of those little uh, uh, healing services where someone just simply claimed, oh, my back hurts, and all of a sudden they get, they get miraculously healed and they can walk around and jump around. The guy for 38 years has not been able to walk or move or engage in any productivity in his life. He's just simply sat by the pool, hoping and wishing and waiting that he might be able to get healed, however that might have occurred for him. And this is what Jesus sees as he walks in. I imagine the stench is extreme. Because first and foremost, that pool was right next to the sheep's gate where all the animals were coming in and out of Jerusalem. And what do animals do when they live? <laughs> they don't wait, do they? they? When they go, they go. So I cannot imagine just the stench and the flies let alone these people who physically, 
physically could not take care of themselves, the dirt, the smell, the stench, the sores, the flies had to be, at times, gut-wrenching for people to experience. And they were experiencing it. And Jesus walks into that. Then in the next several verses, we see this amazing interaction that Jesus has with the sick man. This man who had not walked for 38 years, withered, paralyzed. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, Jesus said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And, where, and while I am going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So it was a day of worship and celebration, a day where no work was supposed to be done. And Jesus asked what you would think is a nonsense type of question. The man is paralyzed sitting by the pool and Jesus asks, you want to be healed? Well, yes, of course I do. And in his mind, when he sees that water bubbling, he's supposed to get into it. And if he gets into it, he's going to be healed. But he's paralyzed. He has to rely on someone else to push him into the water, get him in there. Well, by the time that all happens, someone else gets dipped, someone else gets healed. So he's desperate. Jesus addresses it by just simply telling him, get up. That's exactly what he says. Get up, take your bed, and walk. He doesn't say, now you're healed, or if you have faith, you're healed, or, you know, you're right with me, right with God, you're healed. System, get up, take your bed and walk. And what does he do? What is his reaction? Jesus, you don't understand. For 38 years, I've been paralyzed. I can't get up and walk. The last time I walked was 38 years ago. My muscles no longer work. My tendons no longer work. My bones are weak and brittle. I can't move. I haven't been able to move for 38 years. Now, I have no idea how old this guy is to begin with. Maybe he's been paralyzed most of his life. Maybe he's been paralyzed 90% of his life. Maybe he doesn't even remember what it's like to walk in a field of grass and to feel earth under his feet. Maybe he doesn't remember what it's like to hold a cup and drink a cup of water. Maybe he doesn't remember that because it's been so long, 38 years of physical, handicapped life. No modern conveniences or helps. He just depends on somebody to push him in the water. I remember having a conversation with someone about healing. And we looked at this scripture. And I said to him, what's your response to this? <laughs> you know what he said? said, I think it's unfair. I said, what's unfair? All these sick people are there, and Jesus only heals one person. That's unfair. 
Of course, I had to probe that question a little bit further. I said, what's unfair about it? Well, I mean, he just picked one person and healed them. He didn't, he didn't heal everybody. He should have just said, everyone, you're healed. Get up and go. I said, well, I believe that Jesus has that power. Absolutely. He could eradicate every sickness if he wanted to right here and now. And the point is, with this gentleman, it got down to the fact he wasn't so much upset that the other people were not healed. He was upset he's never been healed. And so we said, it's so unfair that I have to live with this handicap and God heals other people and not me. You do realize that's not the point of the story. How many people Jesus heals. The fact that he healed one person is a God-ordained miracle of grace mercy, and compassion. He did not have to heal even that one man, but he chose out of his mercy and tenderness and compassion to demonstrate his love in a very physical way for that one man that he might receive healing in his body. The text has nothing to do with your healing or lack of healing. That's not the point of it at all. The point of it is to demonstrate that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the overcoming God King, who has mastery, not only of turning water into wine, not only of talking to Nicodemus, not only convincing the woman at the well of her heart of heart problems and witnessing and evangelizing to the world around him, not even healing someone on deathbed from far away. But the point of it is, to show us that Jesus is believable, that he is someone we can put our faith and trust and confidence in, that he indeed is the Messiah, that he is the overcoming God King, and our faith and belief is well-placed. When we say to him, save me, I have no other hope. I have been dead in my sin for 38 years. I have no hope of anyone helping me. And then Jesus enters our life and says, I'm the one. I heal, I save, I redeem, I restore. I am a miracle worker and I change dead hearts into living hearts. And I do it by the most extreme measure possible. I present myself as a sacrifice for your sins. And I demand in payment Nothing. Nothing. And that's why we call salvation by grace and grace alone. Undeserved, unmerited love and favor. And the fact that Jesus decided to show that grace and mercy and tenderness physically to one person should make us rejoice, not make us question God's love and accuse him of not caring about other people that are not healed. Healing in your body is not a demonstration of God's ultimate love for you or not, whether he does it. The ultimate healing we need is not from being paralyzed. It's not from high blood pressure. It's not from diabetes. It's not from any ailment you can guess. What we really need is a heart surgeon who takes our sin and says, I'll deal with it. 
once and for all. No gimmicks, no trinkets, no payment, no song and dance. I'll heal you of the disease that is actually going to kill you forever and ever and ever. And sentence you to eternal, tormented damnation. Now, wouldn't you rather be healed of that with a guarantee than just a sore back every now and again? Or whatever you might be going through that may have been lifelong? What's longer, our lifespan or eternity? I would rather have my eternity all fixed than to have better eyesight and, according to some people, better hearing. But then I don't hear them talking, so I don't know if they're saying that or not. We want the eternal change. We want the eternal change. And time and time again, Jesus has said, I'm giving you the eternal change. That's yours. Everyone who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be potentially, maybe, if you're really good, saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. It's not a maybe and if, I hope. It's a reality. He cures the one disease that medical science will never be able to solve. The deadness of our heart due to our choice to live in sin. And that's his whole conversation with Nicodemus. You must be born again. You cannot go through life thinking legalism will save you. You have to go through life knowing that only Jesus does save. Being born again. So, we should not look at this as an example of how unfair it is that other people aren't healed, how unfair it is that you're not healed. Not the point of it. The point of it should be rejoicing that Jesus is demonstrating why we can believe in him. We don't even need the physical works in order to believe in him. We just need to have faith in who he is and what he does. We don't need to see the miracles, but he shows us the miracles to strengthen us and encourage us when at times we want to doubt. We can go back to John chapter 5 and say, no, he is an overcoming God king. He is our Messiah. He is able and willing to bring us, bring us through the most terrifying moment of our existence when we die. He sustains us and carries us. So that should be the response, but we have a group of people who don't respond that way in John chapter 5, 10 through 18. Let me read that quickly. 10 through 18, excuse me. So the Jews said to the man, that is the Jewish leaders, so all the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all the lawyers, all the religious experts, all the experts. Like remember, Nicodemus was an expert. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. You see, he was carrying his bed. He had just been laying on it for 38 years in some form or fashion, and he picks it up, as Jesus said, and walked, and he's walking. But they're concerned about what? Oh, you're working. You're, picking, you're carrying a bed. You can't do that. It's a Sabbath. It's a day of rest. You're not allowed to do that. Well, he answered them. Well, the man who healed me, verse 11, the man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man that said to you, take up your bed and walk? Notice, they don't say, who healed you? 
Who has power over 38 years of being paralyzed and withered? Who healed you? No, their concern was, uh-oh, someone didn't follow the letter of the law. Who is it? Who told you to work? You do see I'm walking. I'm actually able to carry and hold something where for 38 years I wasn't able to. But their mind is so fixated on a religion that is based on rules and boundaries and must-dos and must-not-dos that when they see a miracle in front of them, they point fingers. Who told you to do this? Well, he answers them. Well, you know, the guy that told me to get up and walk. Who did this to you? Now, the man had been healed, verse 13, did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. So Jesus walked away. The religious leader saw it. And my guess is because all of this is happening sort of at exactly the same time, there probably were religious leaders or other people just in that general area to see what was going on and happening. They saw this take place. He gets up and he starts to walk. I don't think he walked very far, but everyone is surrounding this guy going, you wouldn't believe this. It happened without the water. You don't need an angel to touch something. God heals, not angels. God does. This is amazing. How does this happen? And people started the rumor mill. Well, I don't know who it was. I don't know who that was. Who was it? I don't know. He must be a teacher, a rabbi of some sort. But the religious leaders, instead of praising God for healing and a miracle taking place, they're focusing on something that they should not be focusing on. So verse 14 continues the story. Jesus isn't around. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, that's a very short little phrase about some kind of thing that's happening in the story, but it has profound importance. Right after these events, he's confronted by the religious leaders about working because he was healed. Where does Jesus find the man? In the temple. What was the temple there for? To worship. The guy immediately goes to worship God. Now, maybe with not full knowledge of everything that's going on, he didn't even know Jesus' name, didn't understand everything, but his response was, I'm not worried about carrying my, my, my mat that I'm sleeping on. I want to go praise God. So he joins temple worship, probably singing, probably hearing, definitely smelling and seeing all of the, uh, the animal sacrifices and the grain sacrifices, but he wanted to go worship. And that's where Jesus found him, in the temple. And so Jesus says to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. So Jesus addresses the fact that this is a heart issue, that something needs to be changed in your heart so that you acknowledge the greatness of what just occurred. So you, sin should be far from you. You shouldn't think about sin. You shouldn't go down that path. It wasn't that he was paralyzed because he was sinning, and now he has a fresh start. No, he has a fresh start in his heart because God was gracious to him, merciful to him, did this miracle act, and Jesus says, hey, remember, the overall goal of this is that you be right with God. That sin would not be your master, but that God would be your master. Make sure you hold on to this gift that God has given you of new life. Let that be your focus. Not depression, not anger, not hate, not questioning, why am I like this? No. Follow me. Follow God. Be righteous. Live in a way that is worthy of his calling in your life. 
And so verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. So the leaders must have been there. The connection was made, and he goes, that's the guy who did it right there. His name's Jesus. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now at first reading, this phrase, my father is working until now, and now I am working. Hardly in the English, it means Jesus is claiming to be God. But the Jews had clarity about what he actually meant. First, he calls God his father. Now, they won't even use the word Jehovah or Yahweh in their written scripture. They're afraid to even use his name, the name that he gave his people. And Jesus is calling him father and saying, the father's working and I am working. And in their mind, they rightly understood that meant Jesus was claiming to be God. So not only were they upset that this man was told to walk and work, but they were upset that Jesus is claiming to be God, and he was. Instead of turning to Jesus in repentance and saying, I have filled our lives with so many rules and boundaries that I have no relationship with God. My relationship with God is rules, and God is not a rule. He is a person that we are to have a relationship with. And Jesus has to tell them elsewhere in Mark chapter 2 that I am the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was not made for man, but man has control over the Sabbath. It was their day of rest. The, the Sabbath was not supposed to rule them. He himself declared himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath. It was a time of refreshing, a time of definitely worship, a time of helping those in need. They had provisions in the Old Testament that if your animal had troubles on the Sabbath, you go help your animal. Certainly, this man's life is more valuable than an animal. Absolutely. I want to leave us with the thoughts of these verses that happen towards the end of the book of John. And the reason, again, why Jesus puts this story in there, why John remembers it so vividly, why John records it, and why it's important for us. John, at the end of uh, John chapter 20 and verse 30 and 31, says the following. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. I know I didn't give you a lot of time to turn there, uh, but uh, trust me, we will be talking about these verses throughout the book of John, as he starts his public ministry like this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. This story about this lame man for 38 years was written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the mighty God. And that by believing in him, 
you may have life in his name, that he may overcome the death of sin, that we may be able to go forward and sin no more because he has made us righteous in his eyes. Everything that we had talked about in that short little sentence about the book of John, Jesus is the Messiah, the overcoming God King, is seen in those two verses over and over and over. And the point of it is not to say, God, why did you not heal me? The point of it is, oh, you're making him work on the Sabbath. The point of it has nothing to do with the religious leaders. The point of it has to do with belief. Do you believe that he is the Christ, the Messiah, who is the Son of God? That is our calling. Let us pray, and as I pray, some of the elders will walk forward and we'll do communion this morning. Our gracious Father, we thank you for the goodness that you show to us, your graciousness and mercy and tenderness, and the joy that you give us through a relationship with Jesus. Father, thank you for this story, for this event in history, where Jesus, your son, our brother, overcame the physical limitations of sickness to demonstrate that he is indeed the overcoming God King. Help us, Father, with our doubt and the frailty and smallness of our faith that we might have belief in you during difficult times, during our own sickness and trials, during times of sorrow and pain. Father, may you find us in your temple rejoicing. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, amen. amen.